National Trust Magazine, Summer 2023. Hello and welcome to the summer issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, features and events to enjoy this season. You might have caught the landmark BBC series Wild Isles earlier this year. If not, you can still watch it on iPlayer. Three of the beautiful, fragile landscapes it featured are in trust care. The Farne Islands in Northumberland, Blakeney in Norfolk, and Wick and Fen in Cambridgeshire. Hear from the rangers looking after them, and find out what you can do to help protect and restore nature. There's another BBC series, Hidden Treasures of the National Trust, about the skill and care needed to conserve the precious items in the Trust's collections. Meet the people at the Royal Oak Foundation Conservation Studio and the Textile Conservation Studio, some of whom feature in the series. And finally, garden designer Chris Beardshaw commemorates 75 years of trust care of Arts and Crafts Garden Hidcote in Gloucestershire. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Akia Henry and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been happening around the trust. Tapestries Return Home A 24-year conservation journey is finally ending with the return of the last of 13 enormous tapestries to Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire, following extensive cleaning and repair work. The last tapestry will be rehung this July, completing the return of the 70-metre or 230-foot long set. Together, The 13 Gideon Tapestries tell the story of Gideon, one of the 12 judges in the Old Testament Book of Judges. They were first woven for the Elizabethan courtier Sir Christopher Hatton in 1578 and would originally have been much more vibrantly coloured. Bess of Hardwick had patches with her own coat of arms made and stuck over his after she purchased them. Many generous donors have supported the conservation of the tapestries, Find out more about the project at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Gideon hyphen tapestries. Royal Celebrations As the magazine goes to press, trust places are getting ready to join the celebrations for the coronation of the king and the queen consort over the weekend of the 6th to the 8th of May. Many houses are being lit up and flying flags to mark the occasion. Gatherings are planned where visitors can share food and fun at the Coronation Big Lunch and volunteer activities are being arranged at some places too as part of the Big Help Out from the 8th of May. Magnificent Meadows We've completed a three-year project to restore and create meadows across Wales. Thanks to the Magnificent Meadows Cymru project in partnership with Plant Life Cymru and supported by the Welsh Government, Plants and pollinators are thriving, and there's space for people to enjoy the meadow grasslands, including at the Southwood Estate in Pembrokeshire and Chirk Castle in Wrexham. Nature the Healer In a partnership between the Trust and Marie Curie, four bereavement counsellors are using the gardens at Mount Stewart and the banks of nearby Strangford Loch in County Down as the backdrop for walk-and-talk therapy sessions. They are offering the sessions to help family members whose loved ones have died in the Marie Curie Hospice in Belfast as an alternative to traditional indoor counselling sessions. Going Digital 
Many of you have told us you'd like to have the option of reading National Trust magazine digitally. During 2023, we're trialling some different digital versions as well as your printed magazine. There's a survey in each digital magazine where you can let us know what you think. You can find the latest issue at bit.ly. That's bit.ly forward slash NT Digital Mag Summer 2023. We're looking forward to welcoming you to this year's AGM on Saturday the 11th of November. Whether you join us online, as hundreds of members chose to in 2022, or in person at STEAM, the Museum of the Great Western Railway in Swindon, there will be opportunities to hear from Director General Hilary McGrady and Chair René Olivieri, meet staff, ask questions, and contribute to topical debates. You'll also be able to vote on any resolutions taken during the AGM. More information, along with details on how to vote in this year's council elections and on any resolutions, will be published with the next issue of this magazine and on the Trust's website from early September at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. The National Trust's 2022-2023 annual report will be published online in the autumn. You'll find it at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash annual dash reports. And those were some of the highlights from the summer 2023 news. Our next feature is from the Director General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. The anniversary of the Trust first caring for Hidcut is a good moment to reflect on the importance of gardens, both for the Trust and society at large. Whether grand works of art or our own window box or backyard, horticulture enriches our lives. The seeds of influence are planted at an early age. For many of us, gardens are the first places we get to explore nature on our own in a safe environment. I remember pestering my dad to buy me my own mini-sized shovel so I could mirror his work in the garden. There are surely few activities that match watching and helping something grow for nurturing and appreciation of nature. As we grow older, gardens bring joy in different ways. We begin to notice their beauty, seek to learn more about different plants and habitats, and relish the challenge and creativity of making our own green spaces too. We know that gardens and gardening are good for our health. An RHS study earlier this year found that those who regularly garden have higher well-being scores and lower stress levels, while research in 2020 found a correlation between time spent in gardens and reported levels of good health. There are less obvious benefits too. Gardens are great alternative routes into history. A Tudor herb garden can often tell us just as much about 16th century society as the kitchen or great hall. And the presence of different plant specimens is testament to our historic global connections. There's also the economic angle. Ornamental horticulture and landscaping made an estimated £28.2 billion contribution to the UK GDP in 2019, employing over 650,000 people. I'm immensely proud of the Trust's part in this. The Trust's collection of historic gardens is world-leading, from Sissinghurst in Kent to Studley Royal Water Garden in North Yorkshire. Each has its own character, its own brilliant history, and they all continue to bring joy to thousands of people every day. 
I know for many people, the pleasure of spending time in a beautiful garden is one of the quintessential joys of a trust day out. We mustn't, however, rest on our laurels. Our gardens are living collections which need expert care in order to pass them on to the next generation. There is a critical skills gap, with too few joining, or indeed staying within the sector. Creating new routes for training and development is therefore essential. The Trust is playing its part with new horticultural apprenticeships and the Sissinghurst Scholarship, designed to help train the head gardeners of the future. It's clear that more work will be needed across the sector to encourage and invest in new talent and open up the profession to more people. Gardens are on the front line against climate change and the nature crisis, and careful thought is needed to ensure their resilience. Drier summers and extreme weather mean that adaptation is essential. We know that we need to create more space for nature in our gardens too, and nature-friendly gardening is one of the easiest ways we can all make a difference for wildlife. Our website is full of great tips on building a wildlife-friendly garden. Horticulture must also face up to its own climate footprint. Banning peat compost would make a big difference, and the Trust's own work showed that it can be done at scale. The final change in context for horticulture is that more people are living in towns and cities. Here, gardening looks very different, if you have a garden at all. How can we foster that connection with green space and secure all those vital benefits that it provides? One answer is to look more to shared spaces, such as community gardens, where everyone feels like they own a stake. The transformation of the historic Castlefield Viaduct in Manchester into a new public garden offers just one possible vision. Like the act of gardening itself, we must therefore plan for challenges ahead and invest time and effort to ensure that the future of gardening flourishes for future generations to enjoy. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General. These Wild Isles In this feature, we hear from three rangers working behind the scenes in some of the UK's wildest places to restore fragile landscapes and protect globally important wildlife. Find out how you can experience these wild places for yourself and what you can do to help make a brighter future for them and all the UK's nature, from the robin in your back garden to the puffins on the Farne Islands. Millions of people tuned in to see Sir David Attenborough present the BBC landmark natural history series Wild Isles earlier this year. Over three years, the filmmakers captured the remarkable landscapes and some of the rare, globally significant wildlife we've come to expect from these epic nature documentaries. But this one was shot not on a far-flung shore or in a remote corner of the world, but right here in the UK. Some of the places featured in the series are in trust care, including Wickham Fen in Cambridgeshire, the Farne Islands in Northumberland, and the subject of this issue's glorious cover photograph, Blakeney National Nature Reserve in Norfolk. They are all home to an array of wildlife that your membership helps look after, living in places that you can visit without ever setting foot on a plane. Here, and at hundreds more places around the country, trust rangers and volunteers are working tirelessly to look after and help restore the natural world, sometimes in the most challenging of circumstances. 
over 40% of the UK's native species are in decline, and the UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. Many of the spectacular landscapes and their wildlife seen on wild isles are, in fact, fragile and fragmented. Hear from Rosie Parsons and the rest of the ranger team on the Farne Islands, who are bracing themselves to cope with a second, devastating year of bird flu. On Blakeney's windswept shingle spit, Carl Brooker and his colleagues are rescuing increasing numbers of seals caught in plastic debris, while Carol Laidlaw at Wiccan Fen shares the plan to expand the tiny fragment of surviving fen to protect its rare wildlife and explains why part of that includes using conic ponies for conservation grazing. Valuable as it is, the work of conservation charities isn't enough on its own. To turn around the fortunes of nature in the UK, we need everyone to act now and call for wider change. Together with the RSPB and WWF, we are asking you to help save the UK's wild isles. Sir David Attenborough says, Perhaps you can be the generation to pass these wild isles on in better shape than you inherited them. It's easy to feel overwhelmed or powerless by the scale of the issues facing our planet, but we have the solutions. I am hopeful for the future, because although nature is in crisis, now is the time for action, and together we can save it. Seabirds on the Farns Rosie Parsons is a ranger on the Farne Islands in Northumberland, where she lives between March and December to monitor the internationally important seabird colonies. Going back to the Farne Islands in spring feels like coming home. For much of the spring and summer, I live on the Farns, along with two other full-time rangers and a team of seasonal rangers. Together, we help look after the 23 species of bird that come to nest here, including three species of tern, eider ducks, and over 40,000 breeding puffins. Usually we also welcome day visitors to the islands, but we had to close the islands last year because of bird flu, and unfortunately, we have had to restrict visitors landing on the islands so far this year. In the evening, it's like the islands take a deep breath. There's all the noise of the birds, but it's very peaceful. The remote location means the accommodation is back to basics with no running water. We have to bring our water over from the mainland. In the evening, someone will make dinner and will chill out on the sofa, chatting and playing card games or telling ghost stories. I like to imagine what it was like for the lighthouse keepers and their families living out here in the 19th century. Puffins are funny little birds. They're real characters. They mate for life, and when the males arrive for the breeding season, they dig out all the burrows and give everything a spring clean ready for their female. There will be dirt flying up everywhere as they scrape all the burrows out with their feet. It's funny to watch. The female will then let him know if she approves of the burrow before they get nesting. Baby puffins are gorgeous, fluffy little balls called pufflings, because they nest in burrows, you don't usually see them until they've fledged, but sometimes you get lucky and see one peeping out. After about 40 days, the adults leave, and then, during the night, the young puffins will emerge and fly out to sea. 
The island is covered in vegetation, so we cut runways through it to stop them getting lost. We put so much effort into making sure that they have the best chance of survival that it's quite an emotional moment when they leave, but it's rewarding to be able to give them a helping hand. I was working on the islands last summer when bird flu hit. At the end of May, we started to see terns that weren't looking well. Terns are quite social, so when we saw hunched-over birds on their own, we became quite worried. From there, the bird flu spread like wildfire. We picked up just over 6,000 dead birds in total last summer. So much effort goes into rearing a chick, and for the chick then to die is so distressing. We had fantastic teams who helped us. Everyone got stuck in and was really supportive. Harbour staff, boatmen, and visitors were great too. One lady read about how much the PPE for rangers costs and drove all the way from Bristol with loads of masks, hand sanitizer, and goggles for us. It was nice to know that people cared. Visitors can't land on the farms at the moment, but we'll review this each month as summer goes on. It's a waiting game, and our priority has to be the birds. You can still see the colonies on a boat trip and help support the wider community here. We learned a lot last year, and I'm confident we can deal with whatever happens. Seals at Blakeney Carl Brooker is a ranger at Blakeney National Nature Reserve in Norfolk, home to the largest grey seal colony in England. I'm totally nerdy about seals. I spend hours at Blakeney watching the colony interacting. I've been studying them for 12 years and love learning more about them. Blakeney Point is a busy place. When the seals first started pupping here in 2000, there were just 20 pups. Now there are thousands each winter. We used to walk through the colony every few days to count them, but it's so big now it's not safe to do that anymore. I think the success of the seals at this colony is down to the space and the remoteness. Blakeney Point has a massive sand dune, so if the tide comes up, the seals can retreat up into the dunes, and the colony benefits from a remote location more than four and a half miles up a shingle spit. The females are very aggressive when they have a pup. Usually there is a ten-meter circle of space around each mother, and they'll defend it if any seals or people enter it. Even if another pup comes in, the mother may grab it and shake it. The grey seal pups will put on about two kilograms a day until the mother abandons them at around 21 days old. It's thought that about 40% of pups don't make it through their first year. I've been down to the colony at night to see what they get up to. One night, a bull seal spent a solid two hours shuffling along the beach, up the dunes, and back down again, constantly moving about. I guess he was checking the perimeter of his little domain to make sure no other seals were there. They're surprisingly active. I'm convinced the same seals return to certain areas each year. Some years ago, we came across a seal mother who had a pup two years running in exactly the same spot. She was completely blind, as both her eyes were opaque. How she made it back there, I don't know. Seals have a very sensitive sense of smell, and their whiskers can detect slight movement in the water, which is how they hunt. 
There's so much we still don't know about how all their senses and their memory work. We are seeing more and more seals trapped in plastic debris. When the tide comes in at Blakeney Point, it shoves lots of pollutants, such as oil drums, balloons, and lost or discarded fishing tackle, onto the beach. For some reason, if a seal finds something with a hole in it, it sticks its head through it. We think they're just curious. We rescued a seal a couple of years ago that had a big net stuck around its neck. We managed to cut the net off with a pair of secateurs, and luckily the wound was fairly superficial, because they've got about six centimetres of blubber. But things often don't end that well. The best and safest way to see the seals is by boat. As well as pretty much guaranteeing a sighting, it's a great way to take in the scenery. We have a lovely bunch of volunteer rangers who'll stand on the point in the freezing cold to talk to people about the seals and ask them politely to keep their distance. The seals look cute, but they can be dangerous and cause serious injuries. You feel like you're truly in the wild here. Some days in the winter, I'll not see a soul all day. North of the point, you don't meet any land until the Arctic Circle, so when the wind is blowing from the north, it can feel like the coldest place on Earth. It's worth it, though. Conics at Wiccan Fen Carol Laidlaw is a grazing ranger at Wiccan Fen National Nature Reserve in Cambridgeshire, where she looks after the semi-wild conics, the hardy European ponies that graze the fens. I'm a reluctant fenny. When I moved down to Cambridgeshire from Scotland more than 20 years ago to work here, the contrast between the flat, open fenland and the hills of Fife felt quite stark. Away from Wiccan Fen, the farmland is flat and regimented, with straight drainage channels and hedgerows. But the skies here are big and give you a feeling of your place in the world. I've come to appreciate the beauty here. Wiccan Fen is one of the last surviving fragments of what was once extensive wetland. It's unfarmed in the traditional sense, as it has never been ploughed or planted with a crop such as wheat or barley. When humans started to drain the fens and straighten waterways during the 17th century to make them more productive for agriculture, the area went from 99.9% .9 wetland to less than 0.1%. It has been described as one of Britain's biggest ecological disasters. Wiccan Fen is one of the most biodiverse places we know of in the UK. We have over 9,000 different species, some found only here and at one or two other sites across the UK. The peat at Wiccan Fen is quite unique, as it's alkaline, whereas most peat is acid. We're home to a whole range of rare plant species, including fen ragwort, fen dandelion and fen violet, as well as reed leopard moths and bitterns. We could lose a lot of fenland species if we don't get the water levels or water chemistry right. As most of the fens have been drained, over time this causes the peat to oxidise and shrink before crumbling and disappearing. Where the land is still being drained around Wiccan Fen, the peat is shrinking at a rate of two centimetres a year. Many years ago, we would get seasonal flooding. 
Water would soak through the surrounding chalk ridges and alkaline landscapes, flood the fens over the winter and then drain back down over the summer. That doesn't happen anymore, which makes it a challenge to get enough alkaline water onto Wiccan Fen. Because of this, we're starting to see changes to the soil chemistry, which will ultimately affect the plants growing here. As a grazing ranger, I care for the semi-wild conics. Those are the hardy European ponies and highland cattle. When we started our project to expand the nature reserve in 1999, we wanted to move away from the previous combination of intensive mowing, cutting and scrub bashing to something more sustainable and climate friendly. Conics aren't native to the area. They originally came from Eastern Europe, but they've made a name for themselves as being good conservation grazers for wetland environments, so we introduced them into Wiccan Fen in 2001. The conics act as landscape engineers. They shape and influence the land through grazing, which controls the water levels and creates a nature reserve that is flexible and adaptable. Conics and cattle graze in different ways. Horses snip off selected plants with their incisors, creating a mosaic of cropped lawns, while cattle pull or tear at vegetation, leaving tussocks. This allows different types of vegetation to thrive. Our vision is to create a 52-square-kilometre nature reserve stretching from the oldest part of Wiccan Fen to Cambridge. Every one of the conics has a name and a distinct personality. They form their own social groups, and I try to interfere with that as little as possible. They tend to move around as one herd, but within it there are little natal bands, which are usually formed from unrelated mares with one or two stallions and the young of those mares. The young stay with the natal band they are born into until they're about a year or two old, when they'll either get kicked out by their parents or move away of their own accord. They'll often form a little teenage group, which knocks around causing havoc and learning all the life skills they'll need to hold or join a band of their own in the future. Watching the herd dynamics play out is like a juicy episode of a soap opera. Alliances form and sometimes it all gets a bit eyebrow-raising, but it's fascinating watching who groups with whom. It's also heartwarming because we have mares and stallions who show each other a lot of loyalty. We've got groups that have been together for 20 years or more. Working with livestock is something you live and breathe. At the end of a long day, when I'm sitting with the animals and the sun is setting and the birds are coming in to roost, there's a wonderful moment of harmony and sense of a job well done. Save our wild isles. How you can help. The Trust together with the RSPB and WWF, is asking everyone to act now to help save our wild isles. Sir David Attenborough says, The truth is, every one of us, no matter who we are or where we live, can and must play a part in restoring nature. We are calling on UK leaders to strengthen and enforce environmental protections, support farmers to produce food in a nature-friendly way, and invest in natural solutions to climate change. We are also asking businesses to measure their environmental impact, set targets to reduce it, and to invest more in our natural world. You can help too by going wild 
once a week with the choices you make and how you use your voice. Here are some ideas to get started. 1. Take simple, everyday action. Once a week, take a small but meaningful step to help protect nature, whether that's traveling sustainably or planting wildflower seeds in a window box to help pollinators. Everyday actions add up. 2. In your neighborhood. Take on a project in your local community to make your local area wilder, such as planting a community orchard in your local park or allotments. Get together with friends and neighbors to advance it once a week. 3. Speak up for nature. Put time aside each week to make your voice heard, whether you write to your MP, sign a petition, or share nature content on social media. And 4. Support the People's Plan for Nature. This spring, people from across the UK came together to recommend a series of actions to help reverse nature's decline. The result is the first ever People's Plan for Nature. Find out more at saveourwildisles.org.uk And as I mentioned in my editor's letter, the BBC Wild Isles series, along with a special complimentary documentary, Saving Our Wild Isles, is available on the BBC iPlayer. In this feature, Treasuring the Past, Assistant Editor Imi Tinkler took a tour of the Trust's two conservation studios at Blickling in Norfolk and Knoll in Kent, where skilled experts look after some of history's most remarkable treasures, using a combination of artistry, science and sleuthing. The article is read by Olivia Vinnell. It's a nippy 12 degrees Celsius in the storage room at the National Trust's textile conservation studio, roughly equivalent to a brisk autumn day in late October, and I'm regretting not wearing a warmer jumper. Studio lead Claire Goldborn says, Temperature and humidity are two of the main causes of deterioration for historic objects, so this space is carefully climate-controlled, as you can feel. As we stand among racks of carefully packed garments, upholstered furniture and rolled tapestries, I wrap my arms around myself as unobtrusively as I can and agree. The studio here at Blickling in Norfolk is the older of the Trust's two conservation studios, founded in 1976 when conservation was only just becoming a formal profession. Six years ago, a second studio opened at Knoll in Kent for any non-textile objects from the Trust's collections needing conservation care. This studio was later renamed after the Royal Oak Foundation, following a generous £3 million donation in honour of the National Trust's 125th anniversary. Between them, the two studios look after items ranging from paintings to tapestries, ceramics, clothes, furniture, and even children's toys. You might spot them in the BBC series Hidden Treasures of the National Trust, which is due to air from May, and gives a glimpse into how the Trust cares for historic collections. The series reveals behind-the-scenes stories of buildings and objects across the UK, from the renovation of Vita Sackville West's writing room at Sissinghurst to the cleaning of a model of a Normandy harbour used by Winston Churchill during the planning of D-Day. 
The series also introduces many of the Trust's staff and volunteers who dedicate their time and expertise to conserving these marvels for centuries to come. It's this work I'm delving into on a two-day trip to visit both conservation studios, which is how I find myself standing in what feels like a giant fridge. I'm eager to find out what they've been working on since the series was filmed, so we leave the store and head into the thankfully warmer main studio. At both Knoll and Blickling, I feel I'm walking into the workshop of a master craftsperson as I'm greeted by the hum of voices and the sight of five or six conservators poring over an astounding array of objects. Here's a 470-year-old masterpiece painting by Tintoretto propped up on an easel. Over there, I see a collection of delicate Chinese porcelain vases. In the corner, I notice a pair of opulent 17th-century sleeping chairs with a mechanism to make the backs recline. My inner magpie is captivated by the tools and materials laid out beside the conservator's workstations, or neatly stored ready for use. I spot sheets of sparkling gold leaf, skeins of colorful yarn, bolts of fabric, packets of vibrant pigment powders, and pots with intriguing labels like micro-balloons and milliput. There are wood carving tools, sewing needles, makeup sponges, medical syringes, and even dental wax. Just by looking at the equipment, I'm getting a sense of the huge range of skills the conservators need to carry out their work. Emma Schmucker, studio lead and senior national conservator at Knoll, explains, It's quite an unusual mix. I studied English literature, art, chemistry and sociology at A-level, but I had no idea what to do with them until I heard about conservation. People often don't realize how much science there is in conservation, but it's really important that we understand the materials we're working with and how they might interact with those used by the original maker. This scientific know-how is also helpful when the conservators encounter issues that can't be solved with existing tools or techniques. We're such a small profession that equipment rarely gets invented for us, says Emma, but we can often adapt innovations from other industries. One of the studio's newest acquisitions is an erbium YAG laser, which is typically used in the cosmetics industry and for treating cataracts. At Knoll, however, it's used to clean gilded surfaces, such as the ornate frame surrounding a mirror from Nunnington Hall in North Yorkshire. Senior conservator Jerry Alabone, who conducted the studio's initial experiments with the laser, explains... Someone had covered the frame with bronze paint to hide damage at some point in the frame's history, but it had tarnished badly. Bronze paint is notoriously difficult to remove, but the laser disrupts this non-original layer enough that we can get it off with chemical solvents and reveal the gilding underneath. Every project comes with its own unique set of challenges, but conservation is a close-knit community. Senior Remedial Conservator Sarah Maisie says, We're always talking to other conservators and sharing knowledge. I watch her carefully swabbing away discoloured layers of varnish from a giant portrait by Joshua Reynolds, which has been turned sideways to fit onto her easel. This painting, which usually hangs at Saltram in Devon, is one of four that the Trust is conserving this year to mark the 300th anniversary of Reynolds' birth. Completed in 1772, 
The portrait depicts the Honourable Teresa Robinson, the second wife of Reynolds' close friend, John Parker. Sarah explains, Reynolds' works are quite challenging because he was very experimental and mixed his paints with waxes and resins. He created some amazing visual effects, but the paints haven't always lasted well. We can't necessarily rely on our standard varnish removal techniques with an artist like Reynolds, so I had to adapt my approach to avoid damaging the artwork. There's a lot of activity around Reynolds this year, so it's a great opportunity to share knowledge and experience. I'm part of a Reynolds support group on WhatsApp with other conservators who have worked on his paintings, and we visit each other's studios to discuss the issues we have treating his complex surfaces. Being close enough to see the brush marks gives me a whole new appreciation for how much skill it must take to conserve a masterpiece like this. And it's not just paintings that require a high level of artistry. A few hours to the northeast, at the textile studio at Blickling, textile conservator Yoko Hanagrafes is working on the 13th and final panel of the Gideon Tapestries from Hardwick in Derbyshire. It's the final stage of an enormous project that started 24 years ago, which sounds extreme until I stand next to the panel and suddenly appreciate the vastness of this undertaking. In total, the full set of tapestries stands at about 6 metres high and 70 metres long, or about one and a half times the height of a double-decker bus and six times the length. I watch as Yoko begins to repair a small hole painstakingly hand-stitching rows of threads that pass back and forth over the damaged area. She explains, The vertical warp threads provide the structure, so I'm replacing the ones that have broken to help stabilize the tapestry. Then I can bring back the design using a technique called brick couching to replace the horizontal weft threads. Peering closely, I can see where Yoko's fine couching stitches differ from the tightly interwoven threads of the original tapestry. She says, Our aim is to make sure that the design looks whole from a distance, but up close you can see where it's been repaired. That way people can see what's original and what's not, and it's easier for future conservators to remove if they need to. Yoko continues, The stitching alone takes thousands of hours, but it's one of my favourite parts of the job. It can be quite daunting when you first look at a big hole in a tapestry, but you carry on and eventually it comes together. It's such a nice feeling when it all looks good again. On top of their artistic ability, conservators often need to channel Sherlock Holmes as they work to unravel the mysteries of the objects in their care. For example, the Gideon tapestries were particularly dirty when they arrived at Blickling, due to the history of open coal mining around Hardwick, so they were sent to a specialist facility in Belgium for wet cleaning. During this process, the conservators discovered that one of the panels had an unusual weaver's mark, which was different from the rest of the set. Yoko says, We thought that all of the panels had been woven in Oudnarde in Belgium, but this revealed that at least one was woven 16 miles away in Grammont, a set of tapestries would take several years to make, so it could be that Sir Christopher Hatton, who originally commissioned the set, got the second workshop involved to reduce the waiting time. Hatton died only a few years after the tapestries were completed, 
and they were sold to pay his debts. Bess of Hardwick bought them in 1592 for 326 pounds, about 128,000 pounds today, and upcycled them by having painted patches with her own coat of arms stitched over Hatton's, which the conservators carefully removed and cleaned before stitching them back on. I could spend hours watching Yoko work, but there's still a lot to see, including a large assortment of scientific-looking equipment such as microscopes, UV lights, and giant flexible tubes hanging from the ceiling, which I'm told are fume extractors. The Blickling studio even has its own laboratory, where the conservators mix dyes for yarn and fabrics, recording the recipes they use in thick binders that date back to the studio's earliest days. Venturing upstairs, I discover a room that's been temporarily taken over by the costumes of the celebrated late 19th and early 20th century actress Ellen Terry. Conservator Terry Dewhurst emerges from behind a collection of mannequins adorned with petticoats, bustles and hip pads and lifts a layer of acid-free tissue to reveal a rich purple velvet cloak lying on a table. It's part of the iconic beetle-wing ensemble that Ellen Terry wore for her 1888 performance as Lady Macbeth, which so captivated John Singer Sargent that he immortalised both Terry and her costume in paint. The ensemble is about to go on loan to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts in the US, so Terry has been working to make sure the cloak is ready for travel. As Terry shows me where she's added a fine layer of net to help hold the worn fabric together, she says, I love working on clothes because they offer such a personal connection to the past. You can see this cloak's had a lot of use, but that's all part of its history, the fact that she wore it night after night on stage. Brush marks, fingerprints, stitches wrought by skilled hands, these are what you notice when you take a closer look at historic objects. They're the proof that, hundreds of years ago, someone took the time to sit down and make something that, despite all the odds, survives to this day and contains the stories of everyone who has used it over the years. It's that tangible link to the past that makes it worth all the time and expertise that goes into conservation. The collections we work on tell us so much about the lives of the people who came before us, what they used to wear, how they furnished their houses, what they found beautiful or useful, says Terry. While records and photographs are really useful, you can't beat the experience of actually having a piece of history right there in front of you. If that's inspired you to go and see conservation in action for yourself, the Royal Oak Foundation Conservation Studio at Knoll is open to visitors from Wednesday to Saturday. Entry to Knoll and the studio is by timed ticket only and must be pre-booked at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Knoll. That's K-N-O-L-E. Or take a virtual tour. The Textile Conservation Studio offers a limited number of pre-booked tours each year. But you can get a glimpse inside at any time with our virtual tour video. Visit bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, forward slash textile, dash conservation, dash tour. And Hidden Treasures of the National Trust airs on BBC Two from May and will be available for catch-up on iPlayer. Find out more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash hidden dash treasures. 
With its lush botany and timeless design, Hidcote in Gloucestershire is one of the country's most enchanting gardens, and this year marks the 75th anniversary since it came into trust care. In this feature, garden designer and broadcaster Chris Beardshaw explains its enduring appeal. It's read by Glenn McCready. My first encounter with Hidcote Garden in Gloucestershire remains brilliant in my memory. I first visited as a child of eight, tumbling out of my parents' sweltering car and into what felt like a garden refuge. I roamed across immaculate lawns, rich in sweet fragrance from a summer cut. My hands brushed the textured foliage of the tapestry hedges, and I marveled at the boisterous borders full of exotic blooms under an azure sky. In that moment, as a child at Hidcote, I became a gardener, in my own mind at least. I had already been exposed to horticulture growing up, firstly at my father's precise and methodical allotment, and secondly at my grandmother's chaotic ornamental garden where a plant's ability to survive was reason enough for its inclusion. What drew me to Hidcote was the effortless harmony of the perfectly cultivated plants which had been choreographed to provoke an emotional response. It was a lesson in the impact of beautiful spaces on our well-being. I'm far from the first or last gardener to be so taken by Hidcote. It has a unique place in the history of the National Trust, as it was the first garden the charity took on for its own sake, rather than as part of a mansion or great estate. Seventy-five years later, Hidcote is still considered one of the UK's most influential arts and crafts-inspired gardens. Remarkably, more than a century after it was created, it continues to evoke the quiet, revolutionary spirit of its era, even as it inspires generations of contemporary gardeners and designers. But this most photographed and celebrated garden was never intended as an exhibition piece or site of reverence. The garden emerged not from a single grand plan, but organically, over the course of forty years, out of the curious mind of its escapist creator, Lawrence Johnston. I find that attempting to understand his personality helps explain the unique character and temperament of the garden to me. Lawrence Johnston's upbringing made him something of an enigma. He was born in Paris to a wealthy American family and was largely educated at home in Paris and London before attending Cambridge University in 1893. After university, Johnston travelled north to Northumberland to become a farming pupil, revealing an early inclination for the outdoor life. His father was a veteran of the American Civil War, and Johnston followed his father's military footsteps, becoming a British citizen and then serving in the Second Boer War. Johnston showed some early signs of a burgeoning interest in gardening. One was a beautiful little rock garden he created while lodging at Little Shelford in Cambridge in 1902. His horticultural flair might have been further kindled during his first posting to South Africa in 1900, because by 1904 he has been elected as a Fellow of the Royal Horticultural Society, where he's known to have frequently borrowed books from the Society's library.
Johnston would go on to revisit South Africa later in life on plant-collecting expeditions to find rare species to bring home to his garden. But this was just one side of him, as Johnston was, by all accounts, a conflicted soul. Rarely photographed looking directly at a camera, he valued privacy over the limelight and seemed content with his dogs and fellow gardeners. Johnston's mother had hoped that he would one day become a member of the landed gentry, and so she bought him the 120-hectare Hidcote Manor in 1907 as a canvas for him to realise her dream. But instead of cultivating a great estate, Johnston turned most of his attention to gardening. He hired an unemployed local named Frank Adams to be his head gardener, and in 1907 began nurturing the landscape. The pair started by laying what's known as the Old Garden. Visitors today can still enjoy their scheme of informal herbaceous borders with froths of bulbs and shrubs in soft colours set off by the bricks of the manor's old walled garden. Next, they created the White Garden, with its singular colour theme of white petals against fresh green foliage. The White Garden demonstrates how Johnston took inspiration from the arts and crafts movement as he paired clipped formal medieval-style hedging with wild and naturalistic planting, all in white. These two garden rooms are excellent examples of Johnston's vision to create a wild garden in a formal setting, and were his first tentative steps towards the fully realised garden that visitors enjoy today. Many of Hidcote's admirers believe that these are his most refined and structurally eloquent garden designs. Finding his stride, Johnston developed the next stages of his garden with striking confidence. He created a visual link from the old walled garden by making an axis where two gardens would sit. The first was the elegant French classical style stilt garden with fiercely trimmed hornbeam hedges on top of exposed trunk stilts. At a right angle, he built an Italianate bathing pool, flanked by topiary birds and soundtracked by a burbling statue fountain. Quite remarkably, as well as being beautiful in their own right, these linked spaces formed the structure from which all of the following character gardens flowed. In one move, Johnston had secured the design integrity of the whole future scheme. Neither Johnston nor Adams were proven garden creators, yet together they had crafted a quite extraordinary canvas. This would have been an accomplishment for any proficient landscape designer, but for a self-taught horticulturist and novice designer, it was remarkable. Hidcote's success as a garden is testament to Johnston's appetite for knowledge, sensitive eye, and understanding of staging and styling plants. Johnston didn't leave many records, so we don't fully know where his primary sources of inspiration came from, but the influence of the arts and crafts movement courses through the garden. You can see its aesthetic play out in the topiary hedges and stonework walls of the garden rooms, reflecting the principle 
of a seamlessly connected inside and outside, and through the authentically wild planting schemes, rich in texture and colour, with nature front and centre. You can see how the arts and crafts movement might have appealed to the creative yet introverted Johnston. It had emerged as an antithesis to industrial practices, putting its focus instead on hand-crafting, artistic intelligence and a romantic belief that creativity is most authentic when the artist is immersed in nature. It's likely Johnston drew on two prominent contemporary references, Thomas Mawson and William Robinson. Mawson, a millworker's son from Lancashire, who, like Johnston, was self-taught, honed his skills in architecture and classical arrangement. He published The Art and Craft of Garden Making in 1900, which became a definitive guide to gardening and design. You can see Mawson's preferred formal structure and geometric layout reflected at Hidcote. By contrast, William Robinson was a graduate of Glasnevin Gardens near Dublin, who preferred a natural, relaxed style. His 1870 book, The Wild Garden, encouraged informal planting, which respected individual plant colour, form and aesthetic personality over a strict planting layout. Robinson mixed native and exotic species, sowed lawns with swathes of bulbs and planted shrubs, herbaceous and annuals, in a new, naturalistic style. Johnston's greatest achievement might be the way he took these two approaches and blended them. He gave each of Hidcote's 28 garden rooms its own character, but he also carefully considered the way they would work together as a whole. In less skilled hands, such formal arrangements might run the risk of becoming claustrophobic, but Johnston uses a sleight of hand which, just at the point of sensory overload, shows real finesse. The Pillar Garden is an example of one of his snug rooms where walls of conical yew trees give way to fountains of brightly coloured and richly textured flora playing at their base. Their enclosed spaces contrast with the broad vistas and monumental scale of the theatre lawn, beach allay and long walk, which all offer airiness and breathing space. At particular points, he uses the garden's natural elevation to frame distant views, drawing them into the heart of the scheme. By the early 1920s, the garden layout was complete, and Johnston concentrated on furnishing it with newly discovered plants and exotic rarities, many of which he collected himself on plant-hunting expeditions. These were Hidcote's glory days. People flocked to visit, including garden designer Nora Lindsay and Vita Sackville West and Harold Nicholson, who were in the process of creating their own garden at Sissinghurst in Kent. The garden was open to the public, too, two or three times a year, to raise money for various charities. By the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, Johnston, now in his seventies, put his mind to the long-term future of his beloved garden. He approached the National Trust in 1943, who, after deliberating, decided to accept Hidcote in 1948 as their first garden of national importance 
under a gardens fund launched jointly by the Trust and the Royal Horticultural Society to save such gardens. For me, Hidcote is one of the few gardens whose spaces can simultaneously excite me with their style and structure, while reassuring me with an enveloping calm. I find myself stumbling across views I've never seen before, a previously quiet corner blossoming in a new way. The way the garden responds to seasons, weather, and maturity delights me. It's a work of art. The 75th anniversary of the Trust's relationship with Johnston's garden brings a reminder of the vulnerability of such garden spaces. I think it's vital to stay true to his original vision, preparing the garden to inspire the next generation of horticulturalists and garden creators. Hidcote's in the Cotswolds is beautiful, and there are other arts and crafts gardens in Trust Care too. Olivia and Akia highlight a few you can wander through now. Bodice Gatlin Hall in Conwy is one of the Trust's three historic house hotels. Bodice Gatlin offers views over Conwy Castle and beyond to the craggy peaks of Eruri, or Snowdonia, National Park. Guests can enjoy the Arts and Crafts Garden, which includes a walled rose garden and herb-scented parterre. Goddard's in North Yorkshire is the 20th century family home of Noel Goddard Terry, owner of the chocolate-making firm Terry's. Goddard's was designed by architect Walter Briley in the arts and crafts style. Just outside York, this haven has garden rooms filled with scented borders, trees and ponds. Wander through the intimate medieval manor house, Lights Carey Manor in Somerset, which was restored in the early 20th century by Sir Walter Jenner. Discover topiary sculptures such as the Twelve Apostle Yew Trees, a peacock, domes and cloud-shaped hedges, or relax in the lavender garden or orchard. The warm red brick red house in London is enclosed by its garden, with plants chosen to evoke the 1860s when William Morris lived here. Morris thought of the house and garden as one, and divided the garden into small enclosures surrounded by hurdles. And the five-hectare garden of Standon in West Sussex is the creation of a self-taught gardener, Margaret Beale, who was inspired by the arts and crafts movement. Visit and take in the different spaces, from the house terrace to Goose Green, with its plain trees and views. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to wake up to the sound of birdsong in one of your favourite landscapes? Whether you like to be cocooned in nature, want a great base for an adventure holiday, or love to get off-grid in the hills, the National Trust has over 20 campsites, so you're sure to find one that suits you. Where will you pitch your tent this summer? Brown Sea Island in Dorset. If you're planning to camp on Brown Sea Island, expect the adventure to start before you even arrive. You have to cross the harbour to get here, and most people arrive by foot ferry, so take only what you can fit into a backpack. As the ferry pulls out of Pool Quay, prepare to make this wild island your temporary home. Experienced adventurers can sail to the island on their own canoe, kayak or paddleboard instead, 
landing right on the golden sands of South Shore Beach. However you arrive, the landscape you step onto is a wildlife sanctuary with a rich history. It's shaped by sheltered woodland, sweeping shorelines, dramatic clifftops and a lagoon, which is an internationally important habitat for overwintering and summer-nesting birds. You could spot dunlin, kingfishers, oyster catchers and common and sandwich terns here, but Brownsea's most famous resident must be the rare red squirrel, which has found a safe haven on the island. With nature in such abundance, it's no wonder that Brownsea Island became the birthplace of the scout and guide movement. Robert Baden-Powell hosted the first experimental group camp on the island in 1907, with such success that he founded the organization the following year. Today's campers continue their adventure on foot as they make their way to the National Trust campsite. There are no roads here, which adds to the sense of wildness. You'll follow a walking trail winding through lush woodland for around 25 minutes, longer if you pause to enjoy the glorious coastal views. You can choose your island home from one of three types of shelter, a pre-pitched tree tent suspended in the woodland canopy, which can sleep up to three people, a canvas bell tent for those who enjoy a touch of extra comfort, or you can bring your own tent to pitch in the campsite overlooking the Purbeck Hills. Rupert Danreuter from London, who camped at Brownsea Island last June, says, My partner and I had a magical time when we stayed in our tree tent. It felt like we were on a desert island, with deer, peacocks and red squirrels wandering among us. Once you've squeezed all the sea-swimming and woodland wandering you can out of the day, you'll want to head back to camp to settle in for the evening. You can whip up some delicious food in the communal kitchen, where all the equipment you need to prepare and cook your meals is provided. For breakfast, campers can walk through the peaceful woodland for twenty minutes to the Villano Café by the jetty, which has a great view of the harbour and serves hearty breakfast and lunch. The café is next door to Brownsea's second-hand bookshop, if you want some downtime from your adventures with a new old book. As the sun sets over the island, maybe you'll see the last foot ferry taking its passengers back to pool, which means you have the island to yourselves. As you fall asleep under the stars, listen out for the wildlife all around you. Perhaps you'll dream of waking up to red squirrels, and you never know your luck. Lowray in Cumbria On the western shore of Windermere, Lowray campsite is a jumping-off point for all kinds of adventures. Whether you pitch your tent on the lakeside, park your camper van in the meadow, or take comfort in a safari tent, you'll have a scenic base for exploring. Lowray also has an accessible cabin with level decking, electrically adjustable beds, and an adapted kitchen for those who use a wheelchair. There are miles of routes to explore around the campsite. Families with buggies or wheelchairs might enjoy the lakeside track, while experienced hikers are spoilt for choice with the area's hills and fells. Those who like messing about in boats can launch straight onto the lake from the campsite, with kayaks and stand-up paddleboards available to rent from the active outdoors base. You can hire bikes too, with excellent mountain bike tracks over nearby Clave Heights and Grisdale Forest. 
Very Wilson from Glasgow says, Low-ray is the ideal mix of relaxed and fun. It's ideal for children of all ages and the staff made us feel at home with their friendly laid-back attitude. We'll be back next year. Tenerife Farm Campsite in Cornwall. If your summer holiday just has to be beside the seaside, then Tenerife Farm might be the ticket. It's right on the Lizard Peninsula, so you can spend your days getting sandy-toed and salty, exploring the area's hidden coves and beaches. There are big, grassy pitches for every type of camper, and camping pods for hire too. If you're a devoted coastal lover, you might be wandering into the campsite from the southwest coast path, which is just ten minutes away on foot. Walkers might especially enjoy the campsite's brand new shower block to soothe aching muscles. The coast path runs through two nature reserves and links up scores of secluded coves such as Mullion and Kynance. El Curry from Sheffield says, We've got all the facilities we need here in a peaceful rural location. The kids love playing in the wide tent pitches and the local clifftop walks are stunning. Sun-flushed and windswept campers can settle in for the night with pizza, available to pre-order from the camp reception, or if the Cornish mizzle sets in, refuel with local fare from the pubs and restaurants of Mullion Village, just two miles away. Havadichlan in Gwyneth. This remote campsite sits at the foothills of Eruri, or Snowdonia National Park, where the hum of daily life is replaced by the rumble of the Kumchlan River, rolling alongside the camp and the call of chuffs and peregrines around the mountain peaks. You're unlikely to be followed here by the blips and beeps of mobile phones. This is a real back-to-basics site, with space for just 35 tents and no Wi-Fi or mobile reception. It's perfect for those who want to be in nature and the fresh mountain air. As the day begins and sleepy campers start to unzip dewy tents, many will have their sights set on one destination, the 3,560-foot summit of Erwidva, or Snowdon, the highest mountain in Wales. It couldn't be simpler to find the route to the summit, as the Watkin Path, one of the six main routes up the mountain, can be joined from the top of the campsite. All the routes up have been labelled hard and strenuous, with the Watkin Path a particularly challenging one, so don't attempt it without a good level of fitness and navigational skill, or the proper outdoor gear. And if you don't have the summit on your day's to-do list, there are countless waterfalls, wooded valleys and villages to explore. As the birdsong fades on a midsummer evening, the campsite sounds will turn to the crackle of campfires blazing gently in their pre-prepared pits and the murmur of families and friends reliving memories of their day among the Welsh mountains. The Trust has plenty of other camping and caravanning sites across the UK, including Heddon Valley in Devon, Castle Ward Caravan Park in County Down and Upper Booth Farm Campsite in Derbyshire. To check availability and book a campsite, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash camping. My Membership and Me 
Are you one of those families who break motorway journeys at National Trust places instead of service stations? So much nicer. Kitty Greenbrown explains why she's continuing a family tradition when she does it. My mum started calling National Trust places the UK's best service stations. She grew up visiting Croyd in Devon every summer with her parents and sisters, and when she had children, she took us there for holidays too. It's a long drive from Yorkshire, but rather than stopping at the motorway services, she'd always organised the journey so we could take a breather among acres of ancient woodland and fragrant gardens instead. It's a glorious tradition that we're continuing with our own children. Each year we set off for Devon in a car piled high with surfboards, wetsuits and fishing nets, knowing that it's not too long until our first stop, when the holiday really starts. The perfect trust pit stop has a cafe with plenty of cakes and scones that's always a big draw. We also like to go for a walk to stretch our legs, and Lottie, Arthur and Rory love having space to run about and play hide-and-seek or clamber over woodland playgrounds. My husband, Lewis, always wants to know if there's a second-hand bookshop to browse, too. When we're going to Croyd, our first stop will often be Hardwick or Colcabby, both in Derbyshire, depending on traffic and contentment levels in the car. But when we do other trips, we'll excitedly get the map out to see if there are any new places that we can visit on the way. Luckily, there are usually lots of National Trust places handily situated not too far off-route. One of the best bits of the trip to Croyd is getting to Knightshaze in Devon. It marks the beginning of the last leg of our drive. Place names begin to look familiar, and the sea is almost within reach. We'll munch sandwiches and enjoy soup on the lawn, peer at bee-laden blooms in the walled garden, and walk in the woods. On hot days, the fallen pine needles underfoot give off the most amazing scent, which always reminds me of summer, whatever the season. On the return journey, it can feel a bit sad at the end of the break when you're all crammed back in the car with buckets and spades and sand everywhere. But knowing that there are still a couple of places to visit on the way home makes it feel like we're getting an extra day. Even once the holiday's over, we still use our family membership to visit places near home. It's given us so many special memories over the years, like when Lottie first learned to ride a bike at Benningborough Hall in Yorkshire. Whenever we find ourselves with a free day, we choose a National Trust place to go, and every time it's like going on a brand new adventure. And if you'd like to find somewhere to break a long journey, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash places dash two dash stop. And if you have a story to inspire others about the different ways they can use their membership, please drop us a line at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. We store all correspondence securely for 24 months from the date of receipt and then we delete it. We promise not to share your details outside the trust. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this summer. Please make sure to check individual property websites, the National Trust app or call the property for the latest information before you visit. Summer of Play Come out and play this summer with events and activities at more than 150 trust places across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. 
Get back to nature with sensory trails and den building. Unleash creativity with craft activities or enjoy interactive storytelling sessions and live music. Try drop-in sports sessions covering everything from archery and athletics to hockey and hopscotch thanks to funding from Sport England. There'll also be special pop-up play hubs at 14 places. Find your nearest at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash four dash families. For more family fun, try Mog's Remarkable Adventures from the 1st of May to the 31st of July at Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire. Join Anglesey Abbey's Magic of Books celebration with a family-friendly trail all about Judith Kerr's lovable cat, Mog. From the 15th to the 30th of July, delve into the past with the UK's biggest annual Festival of Archaeology. This year's festival takes place from the 15th to the 30th of July with the theme of Creative Archaeology. You can find out how new technologies are being used to help understand ancient landscapes or discover the role archaeology can play in creative projects such as restoring a historic garden. You might even discover events showing how art, music, creative writing and performance can help bring archaeology to life. You can find out what's going on near you and book events at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash festival dash of dash archaeology. Outdoor Adventures Until the 2nd of December, you can take part in Garden Tai Chi on the first Saturday of every month at Hidcote in Gloucestershire. Or try a paddleboard taster session at Borrowdale in Cumbria from the 29th to the 31st of May. Then Thursdays to Saturdays between the 10th of August and the 2nd of September. A garden tour of medicinal plants will be taking place at Hanbury Hall in Worcestershire on Wednesdays and Saturdays until the 28th of October. Join a guided walk around the restored 18th century garden and discover the amazing medicinal properties of some of the plants that grow here. Or for a bio-blitz weekend, join a ranger for a free nighttime walk at Higham Holmes Nature Reserve on the 15th of July to seek out owls, moths and bats. Alternatively, you can help out with a species recording session on the 16th of July with experts on hand to identify the wildlife you spot on walks around the reserve. Book the night walk on the website. Heritage Open Days returns for its 29th year from the 8th to the 17th of September, ready to shine a spotlight on hidden places, histories and culture that you might not have heard of before. Since 2011, the Trust has helped to coordinate this annual festival, which brings together thousands of individuals, communities and local organisations to host more than 3,000 events across the UK. Visitors can also access many places that aren't usually open to the public, all free of charge. The theme for this year's festival is Creativity Unwrapped, and there'll be plenty of events showing England's rich history of artistry, imagination and expression. You might discover how early medieval societies crafted tools, clothes and decorative items, delve into the creative process of some of history's most talented artists, or hear about the people who shaped the landscapes we know today. Events will be listed on 
heritageopendays.org.uk between June and September, so keep checking back to see what's happening in your area. All these activities and more are listed at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash what's dash on. So do check to see what's going on in your area this summer. Well, that's all from us this summer issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Summer 2023 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Akia Henry, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinall. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding and all items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370. Or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.